are in the book of Esther until now, chapters 1 and 2 in the book of Esther, uh, to use a football analogy, it's all been pregame. It's all been the scouting reports and the warm-ups and the national anthem and the coin flip and the choosing of the sides of the field. That's what this chapters 1 and 2 have been so far. All of that to get to this kickoff day, this opening day, this opening drive, or in baseball, the first pitch, or in chess, the opening move. All of Esther so far has been to get us to chapter 3. This is really where our story picks up steam. I was reading... uh, Kevin Larson, a pastor in Columbia, what he had to say about the book of Esther, and I thought this was a really good recap of chapters 1 and 2, in case you haven't been here in the last couple weeks. He said, The Jews have been removed and scattered from their homeland. They didn't obey God's rules. They paid the price for it. Some of them are far away from Jerusalem in a city called Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire, the king Xerxes is a power-hungry and sex-obsessed man. He throws a, pass- a massive party to show off for the masses. And several drinks in, he has this idea to call his wife, the queen, and have her parade herself before all his male guests. And Vashti the queen, she refuses. This enrages the king and his advisors counsel him not to leave that unpunished. The queen is banished and sometime later, after another military defeat, and no doubt after many drinks in the tank, he agrees to their plan to find a new queen. They'll search the kingdom far and wide for the most beautiful virgins. They'll bring them in, give them beauty treatments, and then have a beauty and sex contest for the ages. The winner will be the new queen. Somehow, a beautiful young woman named Esther, who's secretly a Jew, becomes the queen. And soon after, her uncle, a man named Mordecai, who had taken her in, is a government official of some sort. He overhears a plot to assassinate the king. So he tells that to Esther. She shares it with the king. Those traitors are then executed, and we end chapter 2 with Esther in the palace and her uncle expecting a big reward. It's no secret. But the book of Esther is all about God, once again, saving his beloved people from a certain destruction. You know, God does this over and over and over again in the Scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he continues to do so today. God is in the people-saving business. He is about saving his creation from certain destruction. He has always been and he always will be about that. So in chapters 1 and 2, we see God setting up the playing field, the board if you will, so that he can show how much he loves and that he is the ultimate player. 
And then we see in chapter 3, it doesn't begin the way we expect it to. Does it? We're reminded of the reality of injustice in our fallen world. Maybe you've been passed over for a promotion. Maybe you missed out on a scholarship. Maybe you found yourself on the bench when you think you deserved better. That's where we find ourselves today in chapter 3. So let me tell it to you. I've been doing this the last couple weeks. Again, I just want to remind you, read the story. Read it, because I don't want you to think that I'm telling you something that's not true, okay? Read the story while I, while I tell it, okay? Or this week, read three, read four, read, read, read the Bible. It's a good thing. In verse 1, we see the king ends up promoting a man named Haman, not Mordecai. And that turns out to be a very bad thing for that Jew and for the Jewish nation as a whole, as we'll soon see. In verses 2 through 4, we see Mordecai refusing to acknowledge Haman and respect him in his new elevated position. The other servants of the king, they keep badgering him, telling him to bow, asking him why he won't. Mordecai refuses, only revealing to them that it has something to do with the fact that he is a Jew. In verses 5 and 6, Haman gets wind of this, and he loses his mind. He loses it. We see the destructiveness of pride, and in Haman, who can't handle even one person not affirming him, one person not bowing down to him, one person, he commits to killing all Jewish people in the entire land. All of them. And Mordecai, who will not salute, We see someone in a position of authority over him, and he ends up putting all of his people in danger. In verse 7, we see Haman with his servants. They're casting pur, which is translated to lots or dice. Really, they're dice. They're seeking guidance from the gods as to the best time to put this this strange nation of people to death, to, to, to to do a mass genocide. And we see the tragedy of idolatry here. They do this in the first month. The dice rolls points to a twelfth month as the time to do this evil deed. In verses 8, we see that Haman takes his plan to the king. He bends and twists the truth, making the Jews seem more dangerous and more defiant than they really are. They don't deserve to, die, to live, O king. They're not good for society, O king. And we see the cruelty of prejudice here. Haman offers the king money Our translation says 10,000 bags of silver. Most likely that is equivalent to today, 10 to 15 million dollars. Haman says, listen, I will give this to the treasury. Just let me kill these people. The king says, all right, we're kind of broke. Sounds good to me. 
And He gives them the authority to act. An evil plan has taken hold. The king takes off his ring. He hands it to Haman. He's given him authority to act. And the evil Haman runs out. And the king doesn't realize he has just thrown a death sentence to the queen. Verses 12 through 15, the decrees hit the press, the death sentence gets distributed, a day will come, the Jews will be plundered, they'll be executed, good good Persians are to turn against them. This is distributed across the entire empire. And in verse 15, it closes with this, with the king and Haman sitting down for a drink. And the city of Susa is completely Freaking out. Bible scholar Robert Jameson says this in verse about 15. It says, The completeness of the word painting in this verse is exquisite. The historian, the author, by a simple stroke, has drawn a graphic picture of an oriental ruler wallowing with his favorite person in sensual enjoyments while his tyrannical cruelties were breaking the hearts and homes of thousands and thousands of his people. The people of Persia didn't want to kill the Jews. They didn't want to. But we see there is something afoot, and we see God work in this story. We see the inevitability of corruption in a fallen world. Imagine how you and I would feel if this news circulated through our land. What could God's people, the Jews, here possibly lean on? They needed something, and they needed it quick. At this point in in, in week three, three weeks in, you might be thinking, how does this old story in the Old Testament have anything to do with us today? How does that have anything to do with this world? So, a couple things. One, why does the book of Esther matter today? Number one, is that God's people are being heavily persecuted. Esther 3.8 Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There is a certain race of people scattered through all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. Can I say that I imagine this is probably how the Christian people in Afghanistan are feeling right now, this morning? I was reading The Hill this week. It said, As the Taliban is reportedly already working to track down the known Christians on its list, some local church leaders are counseling their communities of faith to stay inside their homes, even though they know the best and perhaps only long-term hope is to somehow flee the country. Other Christians are reportedly escaping to the hills in an attempt to find safety. 
I was also reading a report of a mission organization that has ties to the underground church in Afghanistan, and here's what they are reporting. It says the Taliban, Taliban are going door-to-door, taking women and children. The people must mark their house with an X if they have a girl over 12 years old so that the Taliban can take them. If they find a young girl and the house was not marked, they will execute the entire family. If a married woman 25 years or older has been found, the Taliban will promptly kill her husband and do whatever they want to her and then sell her as a slave. That's happening right now. This isn't Bible times. It's today. This is the kind of thing that is about to take place here in the book of Esther, but it is happening today. In 2018, Newsweek, of all places, reported that Christian persecution and genocide is worse now than any other time in history. The report examined the plight of Christians in China, Egypt, Uh, India, Iran, Iraq, Nigeria, North Korea, Pakistan, and Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Syria, and Turkey over the period of 2015 to 2017. The research showed that in time, Christians suffered crimes against humanity and some were hanged or crucified. The report found that Saudi Arabia was the only country where the situation for Christians did not get any worse. And that was only because the situation couldn't get any worse than it already was. <laughs> Our friends, right? And guess what? Folks, that was in 2018. It's not gotten any better. It's gotten a lot, lot worse. I know we are pretty cushioned here. We are fortunate here. Most of us don't see the news of Christians in other parts of the world but we have seen what is going on in Afghanistan, and I hope that it is opening your eyes to the persecution that is happening in so many different parts of the world. Number two, why does it matter? Why does Esther matter? Because spiritual warfare is real. First Peter 5.8, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You know, I think that there are way too many times that we forget this. We get so busy, we have screens and TVs and radios and billboards, and they all scream at us. So the world and us, we are never silent anymore. We cannot ever pause a moment and be still and be quiet and spend time with God, let alone consider the idea that there are some spiritual forces on earth that want to destroy your soul. To do whatever it takes to keep you from having a relationship with Jesus. Places like Haiti that are dark. It's easy to see that there, you know. In Haiti, we hear about uh, missionaries reporting that, that people that have been dead for several days, up to a week, that all of a sudden, that things are so dark there that bodies will get up and walk. And we, we point to that and go, man, 
Look how evil that place is. Look at how dark that place is. Folks, church, things are just as dark here. We just don't pay attention. We just block it all out. We just never let anything be silent in here to see what is going on out there. This world is a dark place. Spiritual warfare is real. We think, well, we live in America. Things like that don't happen here. And I say that is false. The evil one is more effective here than anywhere else. A man a long time ago named Charles Baudelaire, and you guys might know this this quote because it was in a movie called The Usual Suspects. But it says, The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. C.S. Lewis, in his amazing work, The Screwtape Letters, says, It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. Screwtape Letters is a novel that C.S. Lewis wrote to tell some great theological truth. It is an imagined correspondence between two demons, one a teacher and one his young nephew. C.S. Lewis knew in the 1940s that the biggest threat to the faith of the Western world was distraction. All the pleasures and conveniences that the Western world had to offer at the time in the 1940s. Can you see now some 80 years later that Mr. Lewis was indeed correct? Look at all the stuff we use to distract us. I'm guilty. (laughs) I'm guilty. TV, movies, music, social media, books, phones, politics, computers, hobbies, hunting, fly fishing. We live in a world that is constantly screaming at us. One that makes it nearly impossible to focus on a relationship with our Creator. And that is spiritual warfare. And guys, Satan's winning right now. He is. There will come a day where he won't, but today he's winning. I I ride my bike every morning. If you live here in Bowen, I'm sure you've seen that beautiful sight of my big butt riding a bike. I I ride seven and a half miles a day every morning now. I try to. So I was doing, I was was listening to audio books and stuff while I was was riding. It was like 30 minutes of an audio book, right? You can go through some audio books pretty well that way. And, you know, the audio books are like, you know, shark attack book, you know, just killer sharks and spy stuff. And, and then a couple of weeks ago, I'm like, you know what? Why am I doing this? Not the bike riding. That's good for me. So I just made a playlist on Spotify. And it's just the top 100 worship songs. I put it on random. And I just sit there, and for half an hour every morning, I pray. Boom. It's like my days go so much better when I do that. 
was like, why did it take so long for me to figure this out? I'm a stinking pastor. How did, how did it take so long for me to figure this out? But I pray, God, let me be a good dad. God, let me be a good husband. God, help me to reach the people in Bowen and the people in Augusta and all around. Help me to be a good witness. Help me to love people the way that you love people. And I, I started, as I, as I know who lives in houses in Bowen, I just, look, I just start praying for people. And everything's changed. My attitude is better. My relationship with my wife is better. My kids better. Because I spend time with Jesus. Two things we learn about God from Esther chapter 3. Number one, God is on his throne. Even when he seems silent, he's truly the king. He's the one reigning, and we have to lean on his, this truth. Here in chapter 3, the pur, the die, are cast. The purim, which is what they're called, are, which are dice, are rolled. Esther 3, 7 says, So in the, mouth, in the month of April, during the twelfth year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast in Haman's presence, the lots were called purim, to determine that the best day and month to take action. And the day was selected was March 7th, nearly a year later. We see that again in verse 7. Part of the reason this book was written was to remind God's people of the day of Purim, which is a Jewish festival. To institute a feast called Purim that we see in, installed in chapter 9. Kevin Larson says, where they'd celebrate the time when it looked like no dice. But the Lord was really on a roll. God seemed absent. He seemed silent, but really, he was at work. Even in the roll of the dice, nothing was happening that he didn't want to have happen. He's the one ruling here over what we might call chance or coincidence. Haman and his boys are shooting dice, thinking that the gods are guiding them what to do, but they don't know the half of it. Proverbs 16, 33, commit your actions to the Lord and your plans will succeed. The snake eyes, or whatever Haman rolls, that doesn't come back by luck. And neither does anything else that happens here. Proverbs 21, 1, the king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it, the Lord guides it wherever he pleases. And that is for both good kings and bad kings. God is in control. He is in charge. He is determining the dice that get rolled. That is our God. One of Lincoln's most beloved profs died several years ago, but I had the pleasure of sitting under him in, in several classes with a professor named Doc Henderson. And he always said this. He said it many times in class while I was sitting under him, was that God is in control and on his throne. So tie a knot and hang on. God is in control. Tie a knot. Hang on. You'll see what he does. Number two, God is for his children. 
If you look at verse 12 in the NIV, it says this, Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Does anybody have any idea the significance of the day that that was? Anybody? Carol, you got anything? The 13th day of the first month. Does anybody know what day that is? It is the, now this is, this is super, super important. That is the eve of Passover. Does anybody know what happened at Passover? What did God do? He saved his people, right? Do you think that is coincidence that that is that day? Absolutely not. The night where they are to put the blood over the door frames so that the angel of death would pass over them. Here in book in the book of Esther, God is at work the day that's supposed to happen. Edict goes out the day before Pas- the day of Passover Eve. The author is foreshadowing what is going to happen. God is going to save his people. God is at work. Church, here's what's interesting. When you get to the New Testament in Romans, you see that, the, that God will bring many Jews in the end in end times, into his church. But now the church gathered from every nation makes up the, the, the Israel of God. We are the Israel now. We are God's people now. It's not the nation of Israel anymore. It's us. The nation of Israel is no longer the true Israel. Paul says in the book we just got done with, last, in Galatians 3, 7, the real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. And later, in Galatians 3.29, and now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. We are his church. We are the new Israel. And our Lord is fiercely committed to us. He's with us. He's for us. And when persecution heats up, And when spiritual warfare intensifies, if we are truly His, if we're truly in Christ, He is for us. He will deliver us. It reminds me of Romans chapter 8. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that neither nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or tomorrow, nor the worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now... Satan, the enemy of God's people, 
unleashes his attacks on us. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But we have to remember that God is for us, for his church. And we must remember these words from Romans. He will keep his chosen people safe and secure even when it seems he is not present, even when we cannot see him working, even when he seems far away. God is always working. He is always for us, and he is always inviting us to trust him and come along on his journey that we might share the hope of the world, Jesus. Because he truly is the hope. His one and only Son. And that whoever believes in him will never perish, will never die, will never be destroyed, but receive a reward of a life spent forever with the good King. That's our promise, church. We get to spend all of eternity with Jesus, living in the kingdom God has made for us. Hold on. When the world seems like it is in ruins, hold on. When everything seems stacked against you, hold on. Help is coming. Help is coming. It's Jesus.